I am thrilled to announce my participation in the upcoming Mercado Sagrado Virtual Salon on April 15th and 16th. This is a virtual conversational gathering of disruptors, freethinkers, and visionaries. We're going to be bringing back the art of conversation and discourse and maybe even respectful disagreement. Imagine that. Joining me will be a fantastic lineup of over 21 other expansive thought leaders like Nadine Artemis of Living Libations, Shiva Rose, and Matt Roski from Cultivate Ultivate. And I'll be discussing quantum abundance, non-dual perspectives, and sovereignty in the stars with Cody Channel. Some of the other topics covered will include the lie of scarcity, the myth and mysteries of the sun, hidden holistic remedies, free energy and suppressed history, natural birthing and peaceful parenting, homesteading, escaping the technocracy, social engineering, immunity, and tons more. So if you're interested in how we can all join in unity and usher in a new era of higher consciousness and human freedom, this is not one to miss, folks. Here's what you do to check out the other speakers, view the entire program, and register. Go to lukestory.com slash Mercado. That's M-E-R-C-A-D-O. Again, this is coming right up on April 15th and 16th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific time for the Mercado Sagrado online salon. That link again is lukestory.com slash Mercado, which can also be found in the show notes for this episode on your podcast app. And by the way, don't trip if you can't attend the event live online because it's going to be recorded and made available to you afterward. See you there. And it's crazy to to think back on it. Like, I really believed that I was going to save the world because I cared enough. I had a heart big enough that I could use my status to do something about it. And so I started to think, you know, do all the things I thought I could do. But it really was, you know, you can't change the world from the same mindset. This is Adrian Grenier, and you're listening to the Lifestylist Podcast. I'm Luke Story, and this is episode 467, Trading Celebrity in the City for a Homestead of Higher Purpose with Adrian Grenier. Now, you might know Adrian for his superb acting on the smash hit show Entourage. However, how I know him and what you'll soon learn is that he's a man deeply committed to personal evolution and service to humanity. And I got to say, his journey from celebrity to homesteader and changemaker is truly inspiring. And I find Adrian's vulnerability and honesty so refreshing, especially after spending a couple decades in the entertainment industry myself. I mean, this is the type of dialogue I always craved when I was working with brilliant and creative artists. But unfortunately, few were able to go there, or at least with me. But our man Adrian does not shy away from the depth of the human experience. And that's one of the many stellar qualities he possesses that makes him unique and interesting. You'll find show notes with links to Adrian's awesome project, EarthSpeed, and all the other work he's up to at lukestory.com slash Adrian. What you're about to hear today is much more a fluid, spontaneous conversation than it is an interview in the classic sense. But here are just a few of the ideas we explore so you know what you're about to get into. We share the story of how we first met on a sacred hunting trip here in Texas, EarthSpeed, his documentary series and lifestyle platform. He tells us about his ranch complete with llamas, a mini pony, and a bunch of chickens. And we talk a lot about his 2002 documentary, Shot in the Dark, 
about tracking down his estranged biological father and how the lack of masculine influence shaped him into who he is and how he regained that part of himself. His rise to fame as an actor and how the role he played bled into his real life. His experience as an artist separating the purity of creativity from the ego trappings of fame. His humble perspective on environmentalism and so very much more. So as we get into this, be ready to be inspired to refine your life's vision, follow your dreams, and become the best version of yourself with Adrian Granier on the Lifestylist podcast. And if you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, do us a favor and text it to a couple friends. So Adrian, my friend, here we go. Here we go. We're finally getting it done. Yay. I love episodes that take time to sort of come to fruition. You know, we've been talking about it for, I don't know, maybe a year or something. It's like you live, what, 45 minutes, hour away? An hour 15. Hour 15 from here, yeah. Which is funny because you're like, to anyone in the world, that's close. But when you're busy and you live in Texas, I don't know, everything takes longer. It's a slower life here. Yeah, well, you know, the conversation we would have had would have been, you know, it would have been superficial. <laughs> we didn't know each other as well. That's true. We were, we were one year less friends. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was thinking about, I don't know if it was the first time we met, because we might have like been introduced before that, but my first experience of you was a couple years back on our sacred hunting trip. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my initiation into Texas, which was a pretty <laughs> hardcore way to land. I mean, I wasn't totally unfamiliar with that world because my dad's from Colorado and that was his whole life. But um, yeah, it was interesting to drop into an experience like that with you. And I knew Preston a little bit because we had recorded and then I brought a friend of mine from LA. There's a small group of us and I knew Monsal, you know, but to dive into something that intense is a great way to get to know people yes yes that was a, a profound and important experience for me what was that like well having grown up being an animal rights activist being vaguely or no, maybe overtly rather anti-violence anti-gun very liberal new yorker coastal mentality to come into an experience where we're actively pursuing an animal to kill it with a weapon was it took a leap to um, embrace that experience and I think for good reason because a lot of times I think people don't have a level of respect and maturity and sacredness to that life-death process that we all are contributing to on some level. So to have a sacred hunt in which we bring hunting into the realm of the sacred really uh, landed for me because it allowed me to connect more into how to respect and appreciate and honor the lives that we take for our own subsistence, for, for consumption, for food. What was your experience of the first night when I shot the boar? Yeah, you came out uh, of the gate (laughs) strong. Does the audience need context for this whole thing? I did an episode, we'll put it in the show notes, with Monsol. Uh, I also did another 
guest appearance with Daniel Vitalis on the Wildfed podcast where mm-hmm. I unpacked the whole meta version of the experience. But many people, we'll put that in the show notes, you guys, which will be lukestory.com slash Adrian, A-D-R-I, wait, A-D-R-I-A-N. Mm-hmm. But no, many people will have not heard the story. So go ahead and contextualize it at will. Yeah, well, you know, we did the sacred hunt with Monsoul and the whole idea is to not just hunt for sport or for trophy, but to uh, more greatly honor and respect animals. And, and you ha- have to really build a skill, the skill to have the capacity to, to kill an animal with complete compassion. Because if you're, if you're at all unsure or incapable of carrying out that deed, you'll often hurt the animal, make it suffer. Maybe you'll wound it, but you won't kill it and it, it'll end up bleeding out and suffering over a period of time. And so to the audience, you're the only one who actually killed an animal. We were all part of that. We all supported the, the, the hunt, but we all had an opportunity to pull the trigger, but I never actually pulled the trigger. I didn't feel like I had that right, the right moment to truly do it right, to, to harvest the animal in the most respectful and honorable way. But that was okay because having been by your side, having been a witness to you pulling the trigger and taking down the animal was, was enough for me to feel it fully in my body, in my heart, and to bear witness to that animal leaving this earth. And it stayed with me. And we, we harvested the animal from, no, from snout to tail all the way. And, and we all t- <laughs> took some of that animal home and we've been eating it for the past year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've tried to articulate what the energetics of that moment were when I took the shot and we all approached the boar, I think it's called a boar, pig, giant, wild hog. There you go, wild hog. There was a feeling in the air that was so intense and so palpable. And it, the word that comes to mind sometimes is psychedelic, but that's not the right word. It's because there's just a, a profound essence to a psychedelic experience that's so unlike our normal waking state typically. Maybe it's like ephemeral or something. It's just... Psychic. Yeah, it's like, mm. what is happening? I mean, I get chills right now. I'm going to get goosebumps just thinking about like walking up and time sort of just comes to a halt and there's this openness and this timelessness and everything just kind of gets really different. And then, of course, all this adrenaline, you know, and I'm like, I, didn't, I wasn't looking at you guys because I'm just with that animal, just praying with the animal and doing, doing my thing. But I mean, tears are coming down my face, but it's not, it's not guilt or shock or, you know, sadness per se. It's just, it's just intensity of just feeling energy move in such a powerful way. And I've always imagined that there's a similar feeling that takes place at the presence of a birth, but I've not experienced mm-hmm. any other than my own, which I obviously don't remember. 
But I'm looking. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking Your forward to. Your body does. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you, maybe yeah. maybe that was some of that, right? I'm like, oh, we've been here before, where yeah. a life force is is leaving a physical vessel or coming into a physical vessel or into the world. But yeah, I just remember that just being so intense. It's transmutation. It's transformation. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I I I've come to realize now that I've been living on land and living closer to nature is, you know, there is no death in nature. There's only transformation. Yeah, something transforming from one state to another, you know, phase shift from one, you know, in, in like embodied existence into another manifestation of that, that thing in a different form. And um, that's happening all the time, everywhere. We're just not tuned into it. And most animals, most things in nature are always continuously living on that razor's edge between life and death. And we are too. We are in that, 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 that space, but we're just, we've repressed it. And we've used society and culture and human devices to take us out of that experience, to shield us from that, that death awareness. I think that's what you're feeling. You're feeling that extreme presence. Yeah. That it is always there, the nowness. Right. Which is so deep and, and expansive and infinite. But we're often, you know, in this very thin layer of narcissism or indulgence or escape or uh, numbness. So maybe that was it. We just, like really just dropped into the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are a few things, you know, I equated it to some of the peak experiences I've had using plant medicines and such, but it, it could also equate to a moment of deep present in, in an orgasm or any other kind of situation in which you're like, what I'm feeling now is so overwhelming that I feel everything kind of, right? It's just like this all-encompassing um, sensory overload kind of thing you know it was, it was really really profound and uh anyway i was happy to happy to share that with you and get to know you a bit more and i think on the second day i believe it was the second day we split into two groups and you guys went off and hunted deer and then we went over to this area where there were more um, wild hogs and <laughs> you guys missed a total shit show over there yeah i mean it that was the hardest part for me because things went awry Mm-hmm. And animals were injured, yeah, and were wandered off, and God knows what happened to them. You know that was really difficult for me to reconcile on the second day, much more so than like a clean shot with very minimal suffering involved. Yeah, and to me that was a huge takeaway um, because there was someone in the the group who didn't it felt felt to me didn't um, didn't do what was necessary to make sure that the animal didn't suffer and that, that everyone was safe. And it became very unsafe very quickly. And the contrast between those two moments stood out for me. It did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I didn't feel safe with that guy. Energetically. There was something that just didn't feel like he was in his body. He wasn't in that present moment. He was hesitant. And so my nervous system felt like I couldn't trust Right, and whereas you, you you in, in like exuded a, a, a tremendous amount of stability, and I just think about that in my everyday life. Think about the amount of people that go around who are 
you know, who, who aren't trustworthy. And it's because they're not willing to do the thing that is necessary in the moment and to own, own the moment. People who are not embodied, who, who aren't taking charge, who aren't in charge of themselves end up creating a lot of destruction. And then you get swept up in it. And, and in that situation in which, well, you can tell the story, but there, I wasn't there, but yeah. I heard all the hogs were running around yeah, and then yeah. it became increasingly more chaotic and destructive yeah. and dangerous. Yeah, there were hogs running in every direction. I mean, it, was, you know, it wasn't like anyone's fault per se. It's just when you can hear them and you can't see them, you don't know exactly where they are and how many they are and what, what size they are, right? So, and they were all up on this kind of cliff side, like almost like goats. I mean, I couldn't believe they were walking on some of these verticals. It was really strange. But yeah, the... Um, you know, a shot was taken and that scattered them and they ran in every direction. And then the secondary guide was trying to protect us. So he starts shooting at him with a mm-hmm. pistol. And I mean, it, it was just like, it's a combat Chaos. scene. Yeah. It was a combat scene. You know, I mean, I didn't feel personally threatened. No guns were pointed in my direction and I was able to evade the No, but yeah, it's many, the of, many of, of the animals ran off the cliff and perished. Right. I, I didn't see that take that's, place. That's, maybe I'm making that up. Yeah, I didn't see I didn't see that happen. I just know maybe that the other guy told me one that. was hit in the side or something, and it didn't right. take it down, so it it scattered off. And right. then at least one other one was was shot in an effort to deter it from running us over. Basically, right, right. So, so on my journey into self, this was profound for me because I think about all the things that I've done in my past that were ignorant or destructive and how that has not only affected me but those around me and all the wounded animals that you know yeah left in my wake and i wasn't a hunter so but i was hunting you know in in my social life i guess but when i think about that experience it was like okay i would imagine that a wise man would maybe have not pulled the trigger, reading the room, seeing the cliffs, understanding their position to the animals, all the things. Like you'd calculate all the imperceivable aspects of that particular moment to maybe be more reserved. Maybe, right? I mean, stuff happens. Maybe you're not as adept as you could be. Whereas... And then, and so I, I took my shots very, very carefully. Like I, because I didn't feel like I understood the weapon enough. I didn't understand hunting enough. So I was very conservative. And I think a lot of times in society, a lot of people are so cavalier and gun ho. They're taking shots that they don't have any right. They have no permission. They have no right to be taking. You know, and <laughs> I'm thinking about my past too. Right, like, right, right. Oh, well, yeah. you, know, Ooh, you know, we get it. <laughs> a lot of a lot of subjective experience in that realm. Yeah, I remember when we spotted the the first one on the first night. It was an, another really interesting part about it was because I've always been a nonviolent person. I never like I've been in two fights my whole life. Like I'm not into war. Violence is just not my scene. I was raised by a mom predominantly too, like you, and we'll talk about that. But uh, 
there was something so innate and primal that when I had that animal in the scope in the crosshairs and I knew that was the exact spot, there was almost no way I couldn't have pulled the trigger because it was like that second mm-hmm. was the second and that was yes. it, right? Mm-hmm. It, and it was, it was a really interesting lesson now that you speak about it more broadly and metaphorically. It's, it's like knowing when to take your shot is as important as just taking it. Well, and, and these instincts that are innate within us to hunt and to kill for survival have been abstracted in society because the killing has been relegated to factory farms. You know, we let other people do our dirty work or the military, we let them kill for us. And so that part of us is dormant, but it's not. It wants, it's still playing out in in bars around, you know, the country or in business rooms where people are, you know, making the kill. You killed it, buddy. You know, like all that rhetoric just speaks to that part of us that is, that needs or that wants to um, be a part of that, that dynamic. And, and I, I think it's very important. And you said this, like you were anti-violence. So was I. And I really believed in the utopia that violence isn't like we could be, a, you know, a world without violence. And I just don't believe that anymore. I think that it is incumbent upon us to find the dangerousness, the capacity to kill within us um, lest it come out in destructive ways that are outside of our control, that are not within the realm of our ability to uh, own it, right? Like ceding our power to meat factories that I think harvest animals in often cruel and destructive ways. Horrific, Abusive to the animals that are unhealthy to the meat. And we take on that karma because that's our karma. We've actually given people, every time you buy a, con, like a conventionally raised and harvested animal, in fact, in you know, mass factory farms, you're actually taking a piece of that karma because you haven't taken the initiative and taken ownership of that whole life-death process. And so that, that was another thing I took away from it. It's like, if I'm going to eat meat, I need to really own it and know that every time I put that in my mouth, I'm taking in that karma. I've given that death is mine. And whether it was done ethically, mindfully, sacredly, or if it was done in ignorance and violence, but I didn't see it, it's still mine. Yeah, I think about, um, you know, no shame. Everyone is raised with a different set of cultural norms and values and it's not necessarily their fault, right? But I think about um, the portion of the hunting population that actually just kills a bunch of animals that they never have any utilitarian purpose for just for fun. And they literally like enjoy killing stuff. You know, I just, I don't get that. Like, I wouldn't say that I enjoyed the moment that I did it. I mean, there's an inner understanding of it. And there was a a kind of um, a pushing of my inner boundaries that I enjoyed and just the intensity of the experience and the lessons involved, but there's nothing fun about causing any pain to another sentient being, for me at least. But for many people, uh, it there is, you know, which is really interesting. Well, I, I don't know if they're having fun. I think it's on some level sick and sadistic 
Uh, I, I, you know, yeah. look, I'll go on a limb and say, yeah, we all have our cultural whatevers, but when people, you know, as regal as it is, it seems when you're hopping around on a horse with your gun and, the, you know, they send out the dogs and then the birds fly up and, you know, you just shoot arbitrary animals and now you have a bunch of geese that you haul off and, you know, maybe that's tradition. But the thing that I learned from the sacred hunt is if you're not connected spiritually to that experience, if it's all just for show or for sport or for like, you know, camaraderie and the animals are uh, a tool of your indulgence in that, you're creating, I think, negative karma on some level. Yeah. Did you ever see, I forget the name of it, but it was a documentary, God, maybe 20 years ago, um, that was narrated by, by Joaquin Phoenix and it was about factory farms and oh God, it, it, was, it was about this idea of speciesism, like mm-hmm. a, a racism, right? Speciesism where we have this um, dominionistic relationship with the animal world. And so it was a very, you know, kind of PETA pro-vegan, but it was so impressive because they showed all of the ways, I mean, now I think it's kind of a, misguided um, ideology from my perspective now. But at the time I became a vegetarian for many years just from watching Mm -hmm. that. I was like, I'm out. Like, I don't want any part of this. But what was interesting about it is, um, what was that freaking, can you look that up for me, Brandon? I'm going to do a Joe Rogan thing. (laughs) Pull that up. Uh, It's the Joaquin Phoenix, you know, animal welfare movie or vegan movie. But one of the things that was interesting is, is they showed all of these different categories uh, in which humans exploit animals. And one of the ones that they, they talked about like animal breeding pets and things like that, right? But one of the things that was really interesting to me is they covered uh, like rodeos mm-hmm. as a sport. And I grew up around rodeos. My dad was like major rodeo guy. And I never got into it because I was like California kid and soft and raised by a mom and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, Pink shirt, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here I go. <laughs> I haven't changed. Um, now I hunt with a pink shirt on. But, uh, it, you know, they showed these animals and just the torture and bullfights and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And chasing the bull in Spain and all this. And I just never contextualized it that way because it was normalized to me. But now, um, like I was recently uh, binging on, um, what's the Montana, Yellowstone. And watching that, I was like cringing and kind of wincing just with them pretending to run cattle and the things that they do, branding them and all this kind of stuff, you know? And uh, I think that left a huge impression on me. And it's been a process of over time reconciling the fact that in nature, everything is eating everything all the time. Right now, millions of organisms are eating me and living off my body and like that cyclical nature that you talked about, but how to extract or separate mindless cruelty or entertainment versus just the natural order of nature. Yeah, and that's a something that everybody has to decide for themselves. You know, just because you know somebody brands an animal that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an act of cruelty. I, mean, I can't say for sure. Right. But on mass if you have a mass market you know, the distance between the end consumer and the animal is so far that it leaves room, it leaves open room for shenanigans. Right, right. Right. Totally. And you can't entirely be 
aware. You you can't take accountability because you know that piece of meat got shipped from you know five states over. Um. So yeah, it's it's a tricky thing, but this just goes up the whole hierarchy chain between us and government. Are the government doing right by us? Are we giving our power to them to make good decisions on our behalf and tell us who <laughs> who we're going to war with or not? Right. Are we taking responsibility for that? You know, I think that we have to just and when you're on when you're I mean, I've been living for the past 2 years on land. There's I, there's not only is there death everywhere because I find bones continuously, but I see death too. You know, we we have chickens. We've lost many of them to other predators, animals, and some of them we've gotten very close to. You know, we and we've had to say goodbye. But even the animals that get sick, we have goats, and it's been tough. It's been like something that we've had to come to terms with is that death and then also recognizing that we we aren't vegetarian we do eat meat so can we continue to increase sensation and feeling and sensitivity to that process so that we're not numbing ourselves to it so that we can feel it more and like you said you were so connected to that animal and one thing that was really profound to me is the idea that your destinies were we're aligned. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Mansell was asking us to journal and to start to call in that moment in which you meet that animal and you start to dream of the animal and you start to connect with it. And you actually start to feel, it, you know, it's suffering. You feel it's, it has a mom. Maybe it has children, you know, and you start to really truly respect and honor the animal more than just it's a, piece of meat to be harvested or exploited or murdered for our benefit. But no, like every time I take a, you know, and that's why that brings on prayer before a meal to a whole new level. You're not just saying some words because, you know, you believe in God. You're saying, I truly appreciate and respect and honor the life that has been given so that I might live. And you have the experience firsthand you know what it smells like what it tastes like what it feels like to be so connected to that animal that when you when you say thank you it's relevant because you were you had a connection with that animal thank you for that reminder allison does that every time she eats anything Mm -hmm. and i just kind of I don't know, stopped noticing that because you just see it every day a few times. But when I when I have seen her do that in the past, I think, oh man, that's a great idea. I gotta do that and then I forget. But that that is in an in and of itself a great practice. It is so hard to stay connected. Yeah, it is. We just want to be like, oh yeah, yeah. Like I've said five graces this week. I'm not gonna, you know, like you just go by rote versus yeah. no, no, really connect into the the farmer that toiled away and overcame great adversity to bring me this millet, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. We're part of a value chain that is passed on. And if we don't have that connection, we don't respect it. We don't honor it. We don't support it in the right way. And then you get shitty cheap food that's made with bad practices and environmental destruction and animal cruelty and all that because we're not continuously connecting in and feeling it and honoring it and truly appreciating it. 
I've literally never met anyone in my life who doesn't like a little sex from time to time. In fact, some folks like it a lot of the time. The thing is that for men, their physical readiness is an important part of making this happen. Remember the last time you were at the gas station and you saw on the counter those horribly branded erection pills? Did you ever take a second to see what's actually in those products? They are terrible for you, just super toxic. And the same goes for most of the medication on the market that claims to help men in the bed, but who wants a four-hour erection, nasty side effects, heart problems, and a possible trip to the hospital to get rid of that thing? Well, luckily for me and maybe some of the men listening, I recently found this really cool product called Joy Mode that fills this gap. It's a performance booster, much like a pre-workout, but for sex. It's really cool. Joy Mode's gig is that they make natural and science-backed sexual wellness supplements for men. Their sexual performance booster is designed to support erection quality and firmness and sex drive. It contains clinically supported doses of L-citrulline, arginine, yohimbine, and vitamin C. To get yourself primed with the old joy mode, all you do is tear open the sachet and mix it with a glass of water, just like your favorite electrolytes. And uh, about 45 minutes later, it's going to be magic time. You'll notice better blood flow, better erection quality and firmness, and increased sexual energy and drive. I've actually taken this product myself many times, and uh, frankly, I was shocked that it actually worked and provided zero side effects. Do you gentlemen want to spice things up in the bedroom and boost your sexual performance? And do you want to do it naturally without those nasty prescription drugs? Well, we've got a special offer for lifestylist listeners right here. Go to usejoymode.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's usejoymode.com slash Luke. What was the impetus for you giving up your, well, I don't know if you entirely give it up because you're still doing acting gigs here <laughs> and there and whatnot, but you definitely took a departure from the standard Hollywood lifestyle and uh, bought a bunch of land and are teaching yourself how to be a steward of the land. I mean, I was telling you the other day when, when we were together, I was like, dude, respect, man, for going all in. You know, it's not, because when I think about doing that, I'll be honest, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would like to have a piece of land and animals and grow food, but like, I'll just hire a bunch of knuckleheads to do it and I'll just keep living the same life I'm living now with people outside mm. doing all that shit for me which is what I'm already doing. <laughs> I just don't know them because I go to Whole Foods and all of those people in yeah. the chain, as you just said, are, are out of my um, field of experience. So what sort of dissatisfaction or motivation started to arise within you to be like, you know what, I'm out. I'm changing course in a big way. Yeah, well, I mean, I've because I did that for 20 years, I've been an environmentalist for 20 years and I, I rose the ranks to become a UN environment ambassador. I've started nonprofits to tell consumers how to behave better or tell businesses how to, you know, be more environmentally friendly on behalf of consumers or tell governments to make laws or regulations to hold consumers or businesses accountable. But it was all about there. Like, you guys do it, but I'm just going to continue as normal, living the way I live. I had a garden. I, I never once stuck my fingers in the soil. <laughs> Where was that? In New York. Oh, okay. Right, because I was like, everyone in New York should have a garden, right? Like Fuck. on your balcony or something? I, oh, I, I had, I was lucky enough. I live in Brooklyn, so I had a little parking lot. So I had a couple of planters. Oh, cool. oh, okay. It was small, but you know, 
I was paying, I don't know how much, way too much money to hire someone to come do it just so that I could take pictures of it and show the lifestyle that everyone should be living. <laughs> That's great. Right. That's good. You know, oh, well, I'm, and what did Bill Gates say the other day? He's like, well, like, I can fly private because I'm investing in all these carbon credits or something, or I'm investing in the technology that will solve climate change. So I can like be a part of the problem. And that's how, that was sort of my mentality in that, well, I'm, I'm a UN environment ambassador. I'm making tremendous change in the world. So I don't have to actually walk the walk or do the work. I don't have to do the work. That was a do the work. It's the hard work that you don't want to do. And that was just one example of all of the things that I was doing in a Hollywood celebrity lifestyle that was more lazy, more more disconnected, more indulgent, more escape. It's more escapism, and and I realized I, in order to become a man to grow the fuck up, I had to wake up from my slumber show up and start cleaning up because no one else was doing it. And so I had to bring myself to the place where I could find the motivation and the inspiration to do the fucking dishes, plant the fucking garden, (laughs) and then stay with the garden, be present and reliable enough to, you know, when there's a drought, like show up and make sure that, you know, irrigation is happening you know when there's a freeze are you gonna you know get whatever tarps and blankets to shield you you gotta take care of these these crops this food and then the animals so if i was going to expect others to do it i had to be able to do it myself so i haven't hired anybody for two years and i've lived through some successes but mostly failures Uh, incredible just like This shit is fucking hard and fucking kudos and respect to the farmers out there that turn to an herbicide or a pesticide because their entire livelihood is about to go up in smoke because there's some condition that's going to undermine that that harvest that year. And I'm over here being like, oh, you can't use chemical fertilizers and blah, 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 because it's got to (laughs) be the environment and it's going to mess up my lifestyle and whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Like, now I get it. Like I, I have to show more respect and again, back to more sensitivity and appreciation for it because now I'm living it so that I'm not standing on a soapbox preaching f- from something that is just an idea, an abstract ideal. It's from something that you are grounded in and you know. So I decided I wanted to be the change. You know, when I was, when I was young, I wanted to change the world and then I got wise and i decided to change myself i love that quote yeah i love that about your perspective i mean we have so many things in common i think especially around our sensitivity and empathy and compassion and the way that we view the world and try to find solutions to these problems that entail suffering (laughs) but it's also interesting to observe that we have so little control over the behavior of other people, right? So to try to get consumers or corporations or government agencies to align with our values is kind of a fool's errand. And, and also, in my experience of getting kind of save the worldism, 
can also be a great distraction from actually facing those things within oneself yeah. that are preventing you from having the level of presence mm-hmm. and deliberate intention that you describe, right? It's like there's sort of a spiritual bypassing and totally. like we got to change everyone out there and the picket signs and the protest and yeah. you know the blame involved. It's a really interesting just human psychology observation, right? Yeah. But when you start to get into what you're talking about, wherein one's individual consciousness and thus the behavior that results from their consciousness is what elevates the rest of the field of consciousness and solves the problems ultimately, you know? But that requires what you're describing is the introspection and the self-discipline and the self-honesty and the humility to go, wow, look at me sitting in New York City. I mean, I, I saw a meme the other day that was really funny in this regard it was like like a a high altitude shot of manhattan and it said these people right here are telling these people over here how to save the environment and it shows a bunch of people living on a farm (laughs) you know it's like these are people that have no contact with the natural environment you know relatively speaking you know between the two coasts telling all of these people how to save the planet when they're Mm -hmm. probably not doing that themselves you know yeah and i was raised in that culture you are disconnected from nature you know, concrete jungle growing up in New York, I didn't know what it meant to be in the soil or in nature. I couldn't even see sky. You could barely see sky. And even if you could see sky when there's a break in the buildings, you were looking down or, you know, looking in a mirror. Yeah, uh, trying not to bump into people or have eye contact. <laughs> right. Or looking at that cute girl that you might bag that night, you know, like totally disconnected from self, from nature, disconnected, right? And, to that point, like I had the ego, the narcissism to think that because, you know, I'm relatively educated, smarty pants, thought I could tell the world um, how to be. And because I was rewarded with fame and fortune, I believed because my wealth said it was so that I somehow was uniquely positioned to do what's right, you know? <laughs> right, right, yeah. And it's crazy to, to think back on it. Like I yeah. really believed that I was going to save the world because I cared enough. I had a heart big enough that I could use my status to do something about it. And so I started to think, you know, do all the things I thought I could do, but it really was you know, you can't change the world from the same mindset. So like I was raised without being capable of even understanding the complexity of the challenge. So I I reduced it to something that was a soundbite or seemed like, oh, the solution is just we all need to get together or something like that, right? Or, you know, just recycle, right? (laughs) Or climate change like as all environmental issues have been reduced to climate change and carbon now that's like the catchphrase if we just reduce our carbon without understanding that the resilience of nature is so complicated so complex that's what makes it resilient that's what makes it so robust is its complexity and we come in with this and i think it's just an extension of colonialism in which we come in and we think we're going to just like dominate and control, otherize nature and people and then exploit them for our benefit, use them up, 
disregard, throw away, discard. And now we're going to save the planet. We're going to come out and we're <laughs> going to save it. As opposed to being like, wait a minute, like take a step back, get out of that mindset of dominance and exploitation and knowing everything. Environmentalists, man, they know so much. They know we're all going to die. So you need to pay more taxes, pay more taxes. (laughs) You need to drive electric cars. You need to not do this and do this and, you know, reduce your whatever. So such knowing, such certainty, right? Put that aside. Curious. Don't know so much. Open up your creativity and your curiosity so that you can come at the world in a different way. And what I found is, oh, I'm not going to tell the world how to be. I'm not going to dominate nature and tell it how to be. I'm going to work within it. And as nature is complex and interconnected and interdependent, so am I. I come from nature. I'm part of it. So now how can I be part of that flow, that process, that natural process, so that... um, as a permaculturist, as a steward of the land, I might be able to nudge things in, in a way that, they, that, it, that nature does what it does best without me, with the least amount of inputs, the least amount of control as possible. Because by the way, all your control things, your control issues, you make a plan and nature laughs. Yeah. Right? Totally. And you can <laughs> see that when, I've always loved the post-apocalyptic genre when civilizations have crumbled and and that kind of thing in in films and whatnot and who doesn't <laughs> I, I love the part of it where when they show a metropolis that's just been grown over right and there's even oh, yeah, places yeah. on the planet for real sometimes. there's a great book i think it's called the world without us oh really really good yeah basically it just in great detail it describes so the conceit is day one humans don't exist you don't ask why they just don't exist and then it just proceeds to describe all the different human civilization things that are being overgrown in great detail. Oh, wow. It's cool. like, first, like, th- there's a shift and then the, there's a crack in the wall and then a bug gets in and then the bug builds a home and then it opens and then there's a little light. It, it just goes in great detail to describe the whole world as nature takes over. Yeah, that's the funny thing when we, and I, I'm very pro-human. I, I think we're meant to be here. Um, so I don't want to get rid of us, not the least of which being myself or anyone I love. But it is interesting that no matter how much humankind builds and constructs on the planet, if it's left alone, the planet just eats it all. Right? It just goes back into becoming There dirt. is no death, only transformation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just transforms. Exactly, yeah. Right. On the kind of naivete of, I'm going to change the world. There's a great quote, and I think it's by um, Ramana Maharshi. And it says, don't bother, I'm going to paraphrase it, but the gist of it is this, don't bother trying to change the world because the world you see doesn't even exist, which I take to mean the world that I see is based on my perception and my preconceived mm-hmm. ideas and notions, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. You could have one person sitting here with me that thinks that right now on planet Earth in 2023, it is absolute utopia and the world is having a spiritual awakening and, yeah, yeah. and we're moving into this utopian haven where all is fair <laughs> and equal and everyone's happy. And then you could have another person sitting here looking at the same world that thinks we are literally in the 
end stages of a tyrannical destruction of the entire civilization, you know? Yeah. And it's the same world out there. It's just whose eyes are perceiving it. I mean, just go down dirty six. You'll go from like a college bar to a biker bar, you know, to a mascarilla. You know, it's like all of our minds are like just different bars perceiving the world in different ways, <laughs> right. just different, you know, expressions of the same thing. Right. But it's, <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that, but... Um, is Dirty Six Sixth Street in Austin? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I've never heard it called that name. It's like Six Sixth Street, and it's just like road, like bar after bar after yeah. bar, just like tightly compressed into like. I went to street. a comedy gig down there one day. I didn't even know that part you of. You went town to see Joe Joe Rogan? Um, no, actually, oh. it was uh, this guy Dean Del Rey at the Vulcan. I think it's called. I think Joe invested, or he was yeah, part of a I, comedy club I, down there. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. I used to dig going to the comedy clubs in L.A. It's like you could just go on a random night, yeah. and you're like, "Who are these guys? They're hilarious! Hilarious! Just really great comedian. I mean, not all of them, but." Every couple, you're like, holy shit, why isn't this person on TV, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it, I don't, maybe it's also just the collective consciousness of humor too. Maybe, oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. if you watch it on Netflix, you'd be like, this guy sucks. But when everyone in the room is kind of wanting and expecting to have a good time and laugh. They're getting permission to laugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I thought, man, this is a great spiritual practice. The last time I, I took Alice, I was like, we got to do this all the time. Like, when do we actually just laugh this hard? Like a belly laugh? Have you ever done laughter yoga? No. Oh, yeah. That's What's that? Thing. It's just a, it's a practice in which you falsely induce yoga until it becomes real, becomes infectious, and then you start laughing because l- laughter has a lot of health benefits, spiritual, psychological, physical benefits because you're releasing endorphins and oxytocin and all these good things that help benefit longevity and, right. and well-being. So, you, just, <laughs> you know, I, I've not... So, so here, I'll, I'll show okay. you what You just go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Keep going. And listeners at home, join in. As long as you're not driving. Uh, I've not done that laughter yoga, but you just reminded me of something, which I haven't done in a while because of the past three years, public speaking has not been... Um, you know, very accessible, but to combat nervousness before giving a talk. And I don't even remember where I learned this or if I just made it up, I'll go in the bathroom or somewhere no one's around and I'll fake laugh myself just to change my mindset, you know, and I'll do that exact thing. Like in my car on the way to a gig to just like, just to shake that anxiety out Mm -hmm. and just change my state. So that's funny. I didn't even know that was a real thing. Yeah, it's just stuck energy, right? Yeah. It's like potential like anxiety is like, what's going to happen next? And like, oh, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about the physiology of laughing and crying is not all that different, right? And you think about the cathartic healing nature of crying. Laughter's got to have a I cried on my way over here too. Did you? Just a little bit. Because <laughs> you were so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to see Luke again. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I've been pretty damn obsessed with mitochondria for the past couple years. From blue light hacks to saunas and cold plunges, I'm always after more ATP, our body's main fuel source. And up until now, there haven't been very many supplements on the market to support mitophagy or the flushing out of old damaged mitochondria. 
So when I discovered this unique compound called urolithin A, I was super intrigued. It's found in pomegranate, but it's very hard, well, impossible really, to eat or drink enough of it to get the scientifically proven clinical dose. This is where a product called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition comes in. They've created three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of urolithin A in their product MitoPure. They've got a delicious vanilla protein powder that combines muscle-building protein with the cellular energy of MitoPure and a berry powder that easily mixes into smoothies or just about any drink and finally soft gels for travel. Personally, I love the new starter pack which lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. This is the first product to offer a precise dose of this compound to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength. It actually took 10 years of research to bring this potent product to market, and I'm personally glad it did because it works. Right now is a special offer for my audience. That means you. Use the promo code LUKE10 to get 10% off any 2, 4, or 12-month MitoPure plan at TimelineNutrition.com. That's TimelineNutrition.com. And to learn more about this fascinating discovery, go back and check out episode 389 with Dr. Chris Wrench. It's incredible stuff. It's funny, like we're promoting your new movie that came out 25 years ago, but I just, for some reason, you know, I'm doing my research on you and stuff like that uh, outside of just what I know about you personally. And uh, I was like, oh, this sounds like a really interesting documentary. So I watched it and I want to talk about that. But before we uh, move on, I haven't been out to your property in, I don't know, a month, I think since Allison's birthday. And thank you, by the way, for allowing us to congregate there on, uh, on January 1st. Yeah, so that's when it was. At that time, you had, I think, a couple llamas and a mini little jackass or pony or something. And then you had chickens. But then I saw on the Earthspeed Instagram, a goat situation. Yeah. So what, what's the current animal count and what are you up to well, out there? Oh, baby goat. Oh, my God. <laughs> Look at those floppy ears, dude. Yeah, you need to cut away that. Oh, my God. So that's cute. so great. Wow. Your dog looks so happy, too. Your dog's like, we got a new dog with big ears. So for those that want to watch the goat video. Go to Earthspeed. Yeah, Earthspeed. At Earthspeed on yeah, Instagram. Yeah. yeah. So you got a goat. Is anything else happened since I last uh, visited? Yeah, well, so we have light livestock. So basically, I'm taking this very early moment in my farming agriculture career to just learn as much as possible, right? I am an apprentice of the land at this moment. So we have in permaculture, it's zone one, which is like the area just outside of your main house. And we have a number of projects that we're working on cultivating as a laboratory to practice. So we have food forests, fruits, nut trees. We have our annual garden for vegetables and, and the like. And then a little vineyard, about 30. Oh, cool. Yeah, we have about 30 vines cultivating wine, some herbs, medicines, medicinals. And then we have a few animals. And just that small footprint, I mean, it's got to be less than an acre, an acre maybe. With the animals, they have some grazing pastures, like maybe a few acres. Just that alone is like a lot of work, you know, a lot, a lot to do. Um, <laughs> Dude, I can't imagine. I mean, <laughs> I'm in like a suburban, maybe a little under half an acre. And it's like just managing this freaking house to make it functional is, I could literally hire someone as a part-time 
house yeah. manager, you yeah. know? Well, saying. I mean, we, we have the food production and all those experiments, but then we also have the house, right? Right. And then we have the freeze. And then suddenly I have four wells, right? When I first moved here, we had that big freeze. And I was like, oh, we're sitting pretty. We have, a, we have well water because a lot of people in, in Austin lost water because of the freeze. But I was sitting pretty because I have a well. Well, suddenly I, I turn on the water and it's there's nothing coming out. I'm like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, because our uh, wellhead froze. Oh my god! And I'm god. like, what's a wellhead? So I learned real quick what you know how a well works. Every time there's a problem, that's when I that's when the greatest amount of learning occurs. It cost me <laughs> it cost me time and, and money, to, but you know I'm gaining so much knowledge and understanding so that I have. At the very least, I'm not an expert, but I have a working knowledge and an understanding of how things work from planting to harvesting to pruning to animal husbandry to all the different elements so that when we start inviting people to, to come live with us on the land, when we, and if I need to hire someone, for example, it's not an extension of my ego or my like narcissism to go make the thing look pretty so that I look good. It's like, no, I'll, I'll help you. You help me. We'll have an exchange of value, but we'll do this together. And, and I hire people as just mentors. Like, you know, will you come build this thing with me and I'll just work under you and learn because there is so much learning to be had. And then eventually, ideally, we'd have a community of 30 or so people all expert in their own right, doing different aspects of the farming. So we'll have a CSA. So we'll create maybe two or three acres of food production for not only our community, but also for local restaurants or community. We have a CSA. You can do a a delivery box of of different fruits and vegetables. We'll expand our wine operations so that we'll have our own libations. You know, it's not just all work. It's also, you know, you want to have a little fun too and we'll create our natural wine so it'll be low intervention, uh, 100% natural Texas grown wine. Awesome. Uh, We'll have... I wish you could make a non-alcoholic version so I could try it. (laughs) I never... There's a lot of good ones actually. One regret I have, I mean you know, kind of overstating that, but I never drank wine for the appreciation of wine. I grew up in the wine country in Sonoma sure. County. I drank wine to just get hammered like straight out of the bottle. Carl Rossi, like the big jugs. Whatever, I, anything. Yeah. You know, I was a bus boy there when I was like 17 and we'd have, the, it was an Italian restaurant and we'd have these big banquets and they'd always leave like half quarter full bottles of wine. So when I would go like bust the tables after they left, I'd stock my trunk, you know? So I just had trunk full of you know wine but now all of these years later i mean i haven't had a drink in 25 years no 26 years now shit it was 26 this month um sometimes i see someone at dinner like drinking a glass of red wine and i go that's probably really nice you know i just i kind of blew that opportunity to appreciate it for what it is it looks like a really not just culturally yeah. but it it feels like it would be a really nice thing just to have with the meal just do you drink kombucha um, not very often. Um, Every once in a while, you know. It's kind of a, a good substitute, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I've managed to do it for this long. It's just <laughs> kind of like, 
I remember when Actually, I Actually kombucha has like little alcohol in it. It does, yeah. yeah. There are I don't know how like there are former alcoholic purists who won't even touch won't kombucha. Even touch and I remember when kombucha kind of first hit the scene, I started making it at home in, in LA in my apartment. And slippery slope. Yeah, and it's, then uh yeah, it's, and it's then a gateway drug. <laughs> my sponsor at the time was like, Well, there's alcohol in that, so I stopped, you know. Oh, and yeah. then but then there was like as the kombucha market blew up there's kombucha that intentionally has more alcohol. You right, know? So hard, you, hard kombucha. Yeah, all this yeah. kind of stuff. So you, you have to be a bit mindful. In fact, a couple of years ago- I can't believe you moved to Texas. Texas, or Austin in particular, is like a very drink-heavy drink city. city. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you, go, you go to like the dentist and they're like, you want a drink? Like, yeah, it's it, crazy. It is different culturally here, yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at, at Cal's house uh, for like a just a gathering of the homies during the day. And I, um, I grabbed a kombucha out of the cooler- and I took a drink and I was like, oh, this is nasty. You know, this is just, why does it taste weird? Know, yeah. I just kind of let it sit there and I had a couple more drinks. And I thought, mm, something just, my intuition was like, better read that bottle. Cause I had looked at the can, you know, or whatever, and been like, oh, yeah, I don't see alcohol. Cause I knew some guys were drinking, you know. But I took a few good swigs of it just to see if I could get used to the taste. And I thought, something's off. And I looked at the, the can and it was like, you know, whatever, 5% or whatever it was. It was, like seems like nothing. Legit alcohol. I was a little buzzed. And it was a really it was actually a really cool moment because I realized that the thing that I used to spend so much energy chasing, which was a lot of drugs, but also I was full blown alcoholic for a long, long time. I actually didn't like the feeling. You know, it wasn't like, oh no, I'm not sober or something. It was just like, ah, I just don't actually mm. like this, which was really liberating mm. in that there's something that's fundamentally changed on such a deep level within me that what used to be my nectar of the gods is like, ugh, just didn't appeal to me. Even if I could quote, like get away with it, I don't think I would really like to get drunk. It just doesn't, it didn't resonate. Same thing when I've had pain pills over the years, mm. I was addicted to heroin and you know at various times i've taken an opiate for surgery or something and i'm like oh my god i hate this feeling to feel nothing which right? is good news you know it's like yeah. oh cool that means there must be much less pain under the under the hood here if you yeah. don't need anesthesia and you take anesthesia it doesn't really do anything for you i guess is what i'm getting yeah. at awesome okay so i watched your documentary as i said called shot in the dark last night and i really enjoyed it and this came out what 25 years ago Something? I, I think it came out in 99. Okay. No, no, I shot it in 99. Okay. Nobody wanted to put it out. Well, I was, it's okay to, for the audience. <laughs> it's a rugged film, like shot on one of those old VHS cameras. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a camera, you could pop tapes into it, a big VHS tape. Or, actually, it's high. It was a little bit more sophisticated in that but still this is before digital cameras before the quality of consumer cameras was anything and i just took that camera i took an xlr cable attached to the end of a like some random mic that i had literally taped it to the end of a broomstick i kid you not and we went out and made a documentary i i dropped out of college i was going to school for filmmaking for, I went to film school and I went one year and they gave me a book on film, like, you know, the techniques of film, film philosophy, whatever. And then they gave me a Bolex, one of those old crank, super 16, black and white 
film cameras. He said, go make a film and then we'll bring it into class and we'll critique it. I was like, I don't need to pay you all this money to do that. I could read the book without, you know, just I can read the book and I can make a film and then have my friends critique it. I don't need to go to college for this. So I dropped out of school and decided to make a film. Literally, I got, and I was like very much into indie films and just the different qualities of film and video that were not pristine, but were a little raw and visceral. Uh, I, I saw this documentary called Sherman's March. This this director, Ross McElway, had a grant to make a documentary about uh, General Sherman's siege down this in, this in the South during the Civil War. And he took that money and he made a documentary about his personal life instead. So I was like big, big into like rebellious films that were doing things different. And anyway, I don't know why I mentioned that, but I decided I was going to make a film using just whatever tools I had. And I had this little camera and then we went out and I went to go find my father. I went to find my estranged father who I hadn't seen in 20 years. And yeah, I found him. There were, there were so many moments in that, dude, that were, there's so much to extract from that experience. And just, I think what's made you who you are and so many things about which I also relate but the awkwardity of the moment that you and your dad met after all those years, I mean, I was sitting there going, how is Adrian like just hanging in there with this? It was so like, tense isn't the right word, just awkward. That's the word. And I think you even said it. You're like, oh, this is awkward, huh? But there were, there were so many moments in there where I'm just like, how is this guy like keeping his composure with this level of awkwardness? Even like meeting your grandparents, your your paternal grandparents, and and when you finally um, meet what would have been your stepmom, who had been a barrier to contact with you and your dad, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is shadow work, man. This mm. is a lot of these are the things that humans hate to face so much that they anesthetize themselves and totally check out, right? And and those cycles of familial trauma and patterning mm. that just carry on and on. So I really, I really enjoyed just that you put a punctuation mark in that story, right? So I'm certain that when you become a father, the experience of your kids is going to be exponentially different. It's like a broken chain. There's a, there's a chain of lineage that just gets boom, pattern interrupted in such a profound way. And it, the seed of it is really having the courage to go, oh my God, this is awkward, this is painful, and walk through it. But not only that, to document it <laughs> and like show the world you going through this deeply personal stuff. I mean, I was like embarrassed at different times. Like even your friend in it at one point was like, well, you know, me and all the guys like think you're a pussy, dude. You're like weak sauce or whatever he said. And I was like, <laughs> why didn't Adrian edit that part out? His friend's like totally dissing him, you know? So there was so much vulnerability in it. And this took place way, way before social media vulnerability was like acceptable and commonplace as, it's, as it is becoming increasingly so, which I really enjoy. Like, Maybe I should re-release it on social media. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Actually, not a bad idea. Repurpose it to a bunch of short TikTok videos. Okay, good, yeah. But anyway, so that's, you know, that's my... Roger Ebert review. But I appreciate that. That's that's kind. Yeah, it's 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 just it said a lot about your character actually mm -hmm. at that young age to be looking for answers. A because many people don't look because it's too scary to look, but B to actually invite 
the public into that experience. It's very, very vulnerable. Well, I don't know if you've seen Teenage Paparazzo. No, I haven't. I didn't so get to that one. I, I have within me a trilogy. And Shot in the Dark was the first installation. Teenage Paparazzo is the second. And there's a third I haven't made yet. Right. And so Shot in the Dark was me rebelling. And I said, even though I was like going to find my father, the premise of the film, and I think I said it, is I want to prove that I don't have to care. I want to prove that I don't need a father. And I did. I proved that. I don't need you. I don't need him. Father's just a construct. They're di- all different kinds of families. My mom is my mom and my dad to me. And when you make a film and you set an intention, a thesis, you inevitably are going to construct you know, a story to fill that, that thesis. And so I feel like I need to revisit what that, like if I were to make that film today, it would be a totally different thesis and conclusion because I, I very much think that I needed a father. I very much think that we as beings need that positive male masculine parental force. Hopefully it's, it's a positive one. You know? um, and now that I'm getting to an age where I want to have children myself, I, I very much know that I not only would, would never leave my children, but I know how important it is that I, that I can be a healthy, divine expression of father for my kids. So yeah, I need to, I need to finish that trilogy. There, it needs to be the final installation. I don't know what that film is going to be, but it's coming. I think it's going to be when you're a dad and you're having the experience of being the father that stays. There were a lot of things, as I said, I related to, but I, I had a dad present in my life much more so than you, although my parents divorced when I was really young. But I was really raised by my mom and my dad's, that polarity of having the masculine and feminine energies instilled in you. And I think in a, in a healthy and perfect dynamic, a child learns how to use both of those en- energies in a balanced and appropriate way. But I, was, I very much was leaning into the feminine energy. And there's so many great things about my personality that I, or attributes that I got from my mom. But my mom was a feminist and raised in Berkeley. And there was a lot of um, <laughs> unintentional emasculation. And then the masculine model in my life, my dad and God bless him, we're good buddies now. He's done a lot of work for the past 40 years. So he's a very integrated person and balanced himself now. But he was a tough customer. I mean, he's a rough guy, like uber masculine, you Mm. know, like no crying aloud, you know, rodeos, hunting, fishing. He was, he's a rugged dude. And you got none of that. Well, you know, the funny thing is, (laughs) well, you know, I don't mean to talk about myself too much. This is going to develop into a question about you as the featured guest, but I'm trying to articulate that I shared from your experience, it seems, you know, the benefit of those sensitivities and artistic expression and those things that are are great for a feminine mom to instill, but there's also like not a great modeling of the masculine energy. So I became a musician and an artist. And and, and, and my mom, she said, I'm I'm your mother and your father. And I'm like, mom, you were a shit father. (laughs) I I love you that you had to survive or you thought you had to. Whatever her, you know, upbringing, psychological makeup, she 
And she did. She fucking killed it and 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 made a living in New York City raising a, a son as a single mom. But she was not capable as a woman because she's her nature is feminine. But as she was not able to fully embody that true masculine sense, you know, she couldn't do both. You can't do both. I don't think. Yeah. You know, fully. So I guess my question out of that is, what are some ways that you've learn to identify and cultivate those masculine energies within you. Because I feel like I, I've spent years just learning how to actually bring out the more assertive part of myself, like the get shit done part of myself, the protector, mm-hmm. the person who's capable of holding space in the middle of a storm, like those positive attributes have taken a lot of work. What are some ways that you've learned to bring up that side of the scale as an adult? Well, you know, these days, this kind of conversation can be quite controversial about masculine, feminine energies and what is a woman, what's, you know, (laughs) you know, all that stuff. But from my perspective, like I was very fluid, very postmodern and like, well, you could be anything you want. And I was, you know, I was open to all sorts of sexual experiences and I was you know very in touch with my feminine and I fancied myself a feminist and it got to I think it became a very destructive part of my personality to the point where I was such a feminist and I believed so much in the equality of men and women that at two in the morning when a girl was leaving my house and I didn't live in the greatest neighborhood. Like I lived, you know, it was pretty rough in Brooklyn, uh, especially at two in the morning. I would let her walk to the train station and get on a train and go home all by herself because, well, women can take care of themselves. They don't, like, they don't need me. And also secretly, I was a little scared. <laughs> That's good to right? admit. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have, I, I, I was like you, I did not fight. You know, I was not a violent person. I didn't have the, the, I didn't have the the fighting skills to take care of myself. To, you know, I was not a violent person. So if if I was confronted by a gang or somebody that wanted to pick on me, I could not defend myself, let alone a, a girl. So I had to realize that I was actually, as much as I was a feminist, I was actually not stepping into my role as a masculine man to protect women and their interests and to take care of them. Being the fact that men are biologically born more physically apt to do so. And so my, I think that's how feminism in my life, growing up with a mom who is strong, who had to survive and was a feminist sort of, and also on some level emasculating me to be not destructive or violent or hurtful partly because I think my mom experienced a lot of masculine destructiveness. So sort of bred that out of me so that I could be safe, so that I was safe, but it actually disempowered me out in the world and also disconnected me from my role as a man to be a protector, to step further into my masculine so that I could not undermine the legitimacy of a woman's autonomy or independence or strength, but to play a role in which I was actually serving 
and protecting women. So part of my journey is, is learning how to hunt, learning how to pull that trigger, cultivating my own proclivity and capacity for violence, not so that I could go be destructive, but so that I can take ownership of the moment and stand, st- be a stand for what's right in the face of maybe forces that are destructive, other humans that w- want to do wrong or do ill, that I can stand up against them. Um, yeah, I can find the part of me that is decisive, that makes decisions. Talking about like my feminine qualities that were, were cultivated and, and you know, really indulged by my mother, I was extremely creative. And I think the feminine energy is about creativity and connecting to potential chaos and having the, the, the ability to like connect into potential and then create from nothing. Like a higher level of sensitivity, a refined sensitivity. Yes, and whereas the masculine is, is choice, is decisiveness, is discernment. So I was always in the flow, in the, in the chaos, and like, you know, just playing <laughs> with fire, and like just, and, and that was really served my creativity. And when I was in acting or in music, it was like really helpful. And, and I, was, I, I excelled in that. And I excelled in it so much that I went to Hollywood, and that creativity was rewarded. But that masculine part of me hadn't been cultivated or defined. So I was, there was a part of me that was craving that and was looking for that. And I found that in sort of destructive expressions of masculine, sort of Peter Pan. Uh, yeah, totally. That, that's a great, uh, great archetype. Yeah. Well, I, I became Vincent Chase. Yeah. I mean, fuck. I mean, like I went straight <laughs> for it. So I would life have ex- imitating art situation. Yeah, I was cast for a reason, right? And then, like I, I was getting external validation, like you're the man, but I wasn't an embodied man. I wasn't a divine expression of man. I was the man because I had money and fame, and status, and all these things. But I was being highly destructive in these ways, and I was not being a divine expression because I wasn't making decisions. I was being extremely loose and non-committal. I was having, you know, too, too many sexual experiences, indiscriminate and like not loving and protecting and honoring the people I was with. It was very selfish and indulgent. And then it wasn't until I got older that I realized not only did I have to step into my own capacity for, for physical aggression to do work, but also to, to take personal responsibility and ownership for what's truth and then be discerning and make choices. And when you make choices, suddenly all the other things fall away. You can't have everything. You can't go everywhere. You have to stand for Right, there's an inherent discipline built into discipline. that. Yeah. And then I got married. I chose to be in a relationship to fully commit my entire self to my wife and my future children. And that is, to me, that is the most divine expression of masculine, which is to just devote yourself to 
a woman so that she can feel safe, so that she can feel protected, so that you can give your life force to her so that she can relax her nervous system just enough that she might be able to open to bring new life into the world. And wow, like now we've gone full circle because when I'm lucky enough to have a child and my my wife gives birth to my son or my daughter, then I can be the father that I never had. I can truly be present, not leave like my dad did. And I can be a protector to my wife and my children that I have the skill enough to teach them how to connect with nature and to have a respect for the animals that give their lives so that we may live. I can give them the sense of presence and awareness that I never learned growing up from a single mom without a father in a city that didn't believe in God, that was all about indulgences and consumption and narcissistic, vapid lifestyle. (laughs) And so for me, that's what being a man is today. Yeah. And that might be the final installment of the trilogy. I think it's very uh, appropriate. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I'm going to take a moment here to share an incredible resource with you. It's called Quantum Upgrade. Every unit of matter contains quantum energy, and so do our cells. Every person has a quantum energy field and constantly interacts with other quantum energy fields. Quantum energy is so important that the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was specifically about quantum entanglement. Let me explain here how Quantum Upgrade uses this energy to powerfully enhance our well-being. Through many years of research, Quantum Upgrade has developed one of the world's most potent sources of usable quantum energy. When you sign up for their service, Quantum Upgrade associates your home, your phone, your business, your pet, or even your car with this energy source. And you all know by now what an EMF mitigation fanatic I am. That's because EMF frequencies are incoherent and dramatically stress the human body. Well, Quantum Upgrade counters this problem by harmonizing the EMF to make them no longer toxic to your body. This is why I love the service on my car. My EMF fatigue has dramatically improved. I mean, it very obviously works. But apart from the EMF benefits, Quantum Upgrade also enhances your vitality in many other ways, which are shown in the studies on their website. So if you want an affordable way to deal with EMF and experience the vitality you deserve, check out quantumupgrade.io and get a 15-day free trial using the code LUKE15. Again, that's quantumupgrade.io. One of the words that came up a lot in that film was passivity. You know, I think that's one of the things you're, you're... homeboy in the film is like yeah we all think you're really passive and then and then your biological dad that you tracked down also had that sort of quality right and i thought well you didn't see the scenes with with uh his wife not your mother but his second wife uh but it sounded like she was kind of wearing the pants and acting as a firewall between he mm-hmm. and, and and you yep. i guess where i'm going with that is how do you differentiate passivity with diplomacy, right? Because I I think in my own experience, being diplomatic and just wanting peaceful resolutions to conflict Mm. is a really great quality, but it can also veer into the shadow where it's people pleaser. Mm -hmm. 
right? And just putting up with shit right. because and you undermine your values just for the peace. yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, you mentioned you know how your relationship is is really a great um, resource or a vehicle for you to start to bring out these other energies. And I've experienced that too, where what I when I think I'm being fair and diplomatic in a situation, there's been multiple occasions in which it's made um, an environment where my wife doesn't feel safe. And mm. she's been like, yo, what the fuck? Stand up. Yeah. Like, and I realized in those moments, I was actually being passive and creating a, a lack of safety. Oh, I've been there. In yeah. our home, you know, just dealing with contractors or whatever, just people from outside and not even understanding how to hold that, that space of um, protectors. It's a strange word. It sounds like, I don't know. It's easy to misconstrue that, but energetic protector, right? Of like keeping a sacred home and a sacred space that that could use some diplomacy, but people pleasing and passivity is like the gateway that destructive energies use to enter your field. Right. So as a divine expression of man, I'm just going to say that, you know, for me, it's last line of defense is your physical strength and aptitude but before that you have to create lots of boundaries so that it doesn't get to that right and i think we're similar in that i was also passive and a people pleaser because that was how i survived i would subordinate myself to the the bullies so that i didn't get beat up and I would, oh, I'll make a joke or like <laughs> invite them in. Be, you know, yeah. now you're my buddy. Like, oh, come on. Like, we're cool, right? Like, I'm, I'll do what you say. Just don't hurt me. As opposed to standing up for what you're doing is wrong and I'm going to challenge you. And so I think part of it is having the, you know, the courage to stand up for what's right and face danger, confront uncomfortable and dangerous circumstances for what's right in it. And there's a certain amount of risk that comes with that, right? Physical body, bodily harm potentially, or just, you know, any number of... Risk. Le- legal threats. <laughs> Listen, I, I, had a, I had a guy, speaking of boundaries, I had a guy come on our land, right? Because there was a part of the land that had been abandoned for a long time. So people were used to coming on and going fishing in our pond. And he came on and, and Jordan was like, someone's on our land. And I'm like, oh, you know... But my passive instinct is like, oh, he's not hurting anyone. He's just fishing. Like, oh, oh. She's like, no, no, I want him off. He doesn't, I don't feel safe. So now I have to find it within myself to go confront this guy. He had a, a, like a, a dog that felt unstable. Like it was just a bulldog of sorts. And who knows, we're in Texas. He could have a gun. And I had to approach him and tell him to, you know, get off my land, you know, but I didn't have... I'm not familiar with the way in which you carry yourself when you're putting up a boundary. So I had to learn that. And it was so uncomfortable to me because I'm like you. I just wanted to be like, oh, it's okay. You're okay. My mom taught me that people are good. Deep down inside, people are good. And that seeing the, the good in people was a, was a high value. Like it was a, the greatest virtue is to see the good in people. So I learned that. And that's, to me, I think that's like a feminine trait. It's like, you're going to love your child no matter what, right? I'm going to love my baby 
No matter if they poop or if they pee or, you know, if they're naughty, oh, come here, it's okay, I'll clean it. Whereas the masculine comes in and says, no, what you did was wrong and this is a boundary and it's not okay. It's discipline. I never learned that. So I was always forgiving people for the worst behavior and I was inviting in destructive forces, humans that were up to no good. And because I saw through all of that at their like core, the wounded little little boy, yeah. the wounded little girl that they were when they were a kid. Dude, I relate to this so yeah. hardcore. And so I had to learn to take a stand for what was right and what was wrong. Make a decision about that. First, you choose. Like, no, this is, I, I have my value system and this is it. And you've crossed this boundary. And now I'm a stand for that. I don't care what happened to you as a little kid. I understand that you're deep down inside a good person, sure. But all the layers of the outside are not okay with me. And so I'm taking a stand. And now I have to find the courage to put myself in a, a scary situation my nervous system's not used to, to say no. And learn how to speak the rhetoric that conveys that I mean it. Not betray myself by hemming and hawing. Oh, well, like, oh, it's like, whew. And that's practice, I think, on some level. Just like you got to practice how to yeah. shoot your gun so that you, you can make sure that when you shoot an animal, you, it doesn't suffer. When, you, when I go to that guy who's on our land, I, he has to feel that I mean it. And he has to retreat. Besides what I say, he just has to feel my energy so that he decides to retreat and he doesn't come at me and like now want to, I don't mean who knows what, fight or something. That's beautifully articulated. Yeah, I think there's a really valuable piece in the naivete that comes from seeing the good in people, right? And being able to compassionately kind of see what you perceive to be their possible backstory. Right. You, you continuously spiritually bypass all the shit that they're yeah, doing yeah. and excuse it away totally, because dude. they're God's children or something like yeah. that. Now, this has, been a, this has been a huge lesson for me uh, as of late. And I've found the stakes to be much higher in those situations when there's someone that I deeply love involved who is now getting the kind of blowback from my lack of boundaries or yeah. lack of discernment right and if it gets to the point where she has to be like dude yeah you need to deal with this we're already it's too too late too far you know and and <laughs> listen to your wife oh man for listen real. i realize my wife is oracle she tells me she because they are connected into energetically everything that's going on and they know something isn't feeling right because their intuition is fucking well established and so when my wife says something's not right as much as i'm like yeah but he's cool or, you know like <laughs> yeah. oh, i have dude. to be like oh really like that's first of all that's disappointing to me because that means i might lose a friend yeah and i and friendship is like important to me because you know, I'm a people pleaser and I want to be acknowledged or liked because my dad abandoned me. So like, I want people to like me and, and stay. And like, when people leave, it makes me feel abandoned or makes me like that triggers that core wound in me. I have to trust her and be like, okay, I trust you. I trust you. Okay. And then I have to go execute <laughs> on her. I mean, I, I see it like women are the navigators and men are the drivers. You know, if a woman's like, no, no, we got to get out of this neighborhood, like hit, hit the freeway. Okay. You know, you do it. 
Allison and I had a conversation, <laughs> well, not a, about this, but we enacted this very dynamic that you speak of last night, wherein I was being a bit loosey-goosey and ignoring some red flags. And mm. she was getting very uncomfortable about a situation because I was just kind of passively letting it, that's eh, whatever, they're cool. Like that exact thing, you know? And it was like, I wouldn't have a fight or anything. She's just like, hey, I need to talk to you. This is the thing that's happening. This is how it feels. I don't like it. How can you fix it? But I look at those situations now really as a gift because she's really inviting out of me the highest version of myself, right? She's saying, oh yeah, that sweet part, the sensitive part of you, great, love it. You're very kind, patient, considerate, right? You're very caring. But that doesn't work when there's some sort of threat to my energetics and I don't feel safe, then that part of you is not very valuable. So how can we cultivate that part of you, that caringness, to use as motivation to become right. strong and to hold boundaries and to right. keep the container. When she's telling you, you're not making me safe. You're just a pussy. You're a wimp, right? When she's emasculating you and telling you what you're not doing, you don't get the, the praise. Well, and the, I think, is, is that right? I, no, I think that that's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. I think because of who she is, it's never really framed in that way. Probably, yeah, I was being dramatic. Yeah, yeah. But... But I have had experiences in relationships where that was the case, but that's because that person had their own wounding and projections that were going on. In this case, it's just like an honest statement of facts. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the way I feel, and I'm inviting you to step up. Right. Right. But it's really that's a gift to you. That it's like, oh my God, thank you so much. I mean, I bow to that because it's bringing out parts of myself that have been dormant that have also caused my life unmanageability and conflict and problems, you know? So it's yeah. like, even if we weren't together, that's a life skill that I would eventually be forced to cultivate through my own failures anyway. So right. great, bring it on. Provided, well, you know, my nervous system in that moment has the capacity to really hold that and, and hear that with an open mind. Right. And that's why men's work is so important. Right, because yeah. it's it's sort of a, a dojo, a practice arena to meet up against conflict and try it on, roughhouse, battle things out with other men so that you can cultivate the skill set to be able to confront it out in the real world. Uh, it's something I'm working on in men's group. It's like, how do I stand up for myself? Because e- even in men's group, it's, it's, I'm perfectly safe. Uh, you know, I trust these men. But I still don't want to tell them how I really feel because I don't want them to dislike me or I don't want them to, you know, and there's some powerful figures in, in men's group yeah. and, 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 and they might bite off my head, you know, or they might argue against me or they might yell at me. Or well, something. in our little group, I mean, I noticed right away being late is not on the agenda. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're taskmasters and I have a very feminine fluid relationship with time <laughs> and space. You know, it's kind of like, oh, whatever. It's 9 a.m. I mean, that means like between 9 and 10. And I learned quickly like, oh, no, there is structure here. You know, and that even that little thing is kind of like different and I wouldn't say intimidating, but, you know, oh, let me lean into that. Why, why do they hold that value? And yeah. what am I missing in my life by, by not examining that value? Being on time is very important to me as well. It's like one thing to say, oh, a man should be present and show up for his kids. It's like, okay, show up when? <laughs> right. I was like, well, you know, I'll be there in 20 years. Yeah. That's like it's the same yeah. case for my dad, right? It's like, no, no. Be there means be there now. 
you know, and whatever now is, if you decide that's what it is, you do it. Yeah, and yeah. not only physically, right, but with a deep presence, right. Yeah, you know, I think not, that's, not be there, but on your phone, right. Mm-hmm. You're at the kids' little league game, and you're over there scrolling, mm-hmm. doing email, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And no shame to the parents who check out. You know, I'm sure it's difficult. I don't have that experience yet. You get to decide. All right, peep this. If you'd like a shortcut to better sleep, more energy, and a calmer, more stable mood, then you want to be supplementing with magnesium on the daily. Here's why. About 75% of people, probably you guys listening included, are magnesium deficient. And this can lead to anxiety, irritability, wax sleep quality, and low energy. It can even contribute to foot and leg cramps while you sleep. Because magnesium is involved in more than 300 chemical processes inside your body. So things tend to fall apart if you don't get enough of it. So the obvious answer there is just take magnesium every day, right? Well, sort of. To experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium. And it turns out there are seven unique forms of magnesium and you got to get all of them to receive its many benefits. And this, my friends, is why I take Magnesium Breakthrough by Bi Optimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that contains all seven different forms. And it's your lucky day because Bi Optimizers, the makers of Magnesium Breakthrough, are offering some incredible bonus gifts for a limited time. Here's the madness they're up to. They're going to toss in free bottles of their powerful digestive enzymes called masszymes and their patented probiotic P3OM along with your magnesium breakthrough order. Pretty generous, I must say. So to score all that, visit magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and enter Luke 10 to activate this exclusive limited time offer. This offer is only available at this specific link magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and that code again is Luke 10. I'm just going to spoiler alert it which because it came out a long time ago. If it was like your new film, I wouldn't do that. But you can find A Shot in the Dark, you guys, what we were talking about on uh, Amazon Prime. But dude, at the end, (laughs) after you and Pops had sort of reconciled and despite it's the awkward nature of it. And it wasn't like, oh my God, I love you, man. Let's hang out every weekend. You know, you were like, oh, this is going well, like as well as it could be. And then you threw in this scene, this like fake scene where he drives up and he's like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want anything to do with you. And then he gives you like a Pez dispenser or something (laughs) as a birthday present. I totally bought into it. And I was like, what the fuck? What is wrong with this guy? I, I totally fell for it. And it was extremely disappointing. So wow, well, by, by, by the way, that that brings me so much joy. I'm so happy that you fell for it. Oh, dude, I was <laughs> in shock. I was like, wait, he was John. Is his name right? John. Yeah, yeah John is like kind of coming around, and you know, he's 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 very introverted, right? So you couldn't really read him, but he was being friendly and you know somewhat open. And you guys are talking, and there's there's progress being made in rekindling that relationship. And then he's just like, I'm out. You know, I was like, oh my God, what a shitty ending to a movie. And then you guys, of course, are like, psych, we're cool. Well, I mean, it was more than that. I mean, it was psych, we're cool. And then let's play out the other story, right? So there are these two narratives, right? Comedy, tragedy. And we're all always projecting or playing those out in our minds. 
But reality is so much more com- complicated and complex and nuanced. The beginning quote in the film is, there are atoms in empty space. All else is opinion. So the idea is that we as humans, as meaning-making machines, as narrators of our own lives, will create these extreme versions of reality. What do you say that is like, the reality isn't... The, the, the world you see doesn't even exist. Doesn't even exist, right? Because we're playing out these storylines. And so when... When you ask people, what is father? It's like, oh, father's the best. It's the, you know, it's playing ball. It's doing all these things. What is father? Oh, well, if, if your father wasn't there, father's, you know, a meanie or whatever. And he's a, an, a, he abandoned me. So I was playing out those stories through, like in reflection of people's reaction to me when I told them that I didn't have a father. When I would tell people I don't have a father, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm fine. What are you talking about? Or they'd be like, oh, you found your father, yay. So we played out both of those versions, those extreme storylines of the, the like romantic reunion of the father. Like, and that's how we closed the film. Where we come together and everything's perfect. You're and, running down a grassy knoll yeah, exactly. and hug. You know? Happily ever after. And then you play the shadow version. But both of those are just, fantasies they're not real like the true story is much more complex and weird and awkward and nuanced and then after the film was done because we filmed it and we shot it and we edited it now my dad's in my life now what i have you you haven't asked since i made that film 25 years ago there's been 25 years of me having to deal with my dad (laughs) you know it's like be careful for what you ask for. that was my next question yeah (laughs) Because we've never talked about it. Have you guys been in contact? We have, yeah. With we, some regularity? Some degree, but he's still my dad. He's still not quite present. Every once in a while, he has this sort of feeble attempt to, to reach out like, hey, son, happy birthday. And But he doesn't have the presence that I crave from my father. He hasn't jumped on a plane to come see the farm. Right, right. To meet my wife. That's okay. Like that's, you know, peace with that. But people want those absolute endings. You know, they wanted it to be all good now. But things, real life isn't, isn't like that. I got one more question for you. Because I, I had another part of my whole topic range was kind of around artistic expression and Hollywood and ego and all of this, but we, we don't have time for that. We'll do another oh, one. And you have to watch Teenage Paparazzo. Okay. Since now you're a fan of my films. Yeah, yeah. Teenage Paparazzo is, is the second installment. Okay. But it's all Hollywood and you know about Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. 17 years of working in that industry. But my question is, and this is, I think, just a broad question for anyone that's creative and has gifts to share. It's like the dilemma of having creative freedom to express your unique gift. We all have our own unique gift, right? And if that happens to come out in the form of your creativity comes out in the form of some art form, right? Then it would be a disservice to the world to not share that. Where is the intersection of authentic creativity and expression and the promotion that it requires to get out there and an egoic identity with your personal self-valuation being based on what that creativity manifests as and how it's received. 
trying to like calculate that question. That's a tough one, right? Especially now. Um, I, I mean, I do believe that we're all creative. You know, we all have the capacity to be creative. I think this idea of being an artist is sort of a bastardization on some level, especially now that it's become commercialized. When, back in the day before television, people would get around, families would get, gather around the piano. And they all knew a little couple tunes and they would play music together. And that was their evening activity. People would journal. They'd have their own ability to write and like express themselves through writing or any number of creative expressions, arts and crafts. And then it became a profession. It became a, like a, a specific field of focus. And then, obviously, television and the commercialization of art and music. And now it's a career and you're in business and you're selling tickets or you're selling clicks or you're selling CDs. (laughs) You're selling, uh, what do they call them? MP3? No. Yeah, MP3s. No, you're not even selling that anymore. You're selling just... Oh. views yeah, on Spotify yeah. or something. Yeah, clicks, downloads. I would just say, if you're a creative person, go out and create. You know, you have all the tools. Things are inexpensive. I went out and I made a film with a camera that I had in my closet and it looks scrappy, but it's poignant. You you were moved by it. It cost me very little, like under, like 50,000 bucks. took me eight years to do, but you know, I, Pieced it together over eight years. You can play music. You don't even need an instrument. Just use your voice. It's the question I always ask people. Because people come up to me like, I want to have a career like you. How did you, blah, blah, blah. How did you get to where you were, where you are? And, I'm, and I have to ask them. I was like, do you want to act? Or do you want to be famous? Yeah, exactly. Right? Well, that just, right there is the crux of kind of my long-winded question, right? Is like, what is, is the motivation? Because you're just so full of ideas and expression that it has to come out. And if it's going to come out, you might as well mm-hmm. share it. Versus like when I wanted to be um, a rock star and moved to Hollywood at 19, I loved music, right? I've had a passion for music. But I had such low self-worth and so much shame from all of the unresolved issues in my life that I actually thought I needed that identity to be worthy of walking the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, so my motivation was not that like, oh, I have to play music. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it was just like, well, I'm not worth anything unless I get a, a number of other people to tell me so. Yeah, well, that's why there's, you know, many ways this society is constructed in a, in a very uh, faulty way because not only is is our communities broken down you know we don't have that tribal sense of belonging where you can be validated by your community your friends your family you're basically seeking the world wide web for validation and all the attention is funneling to a few people you know the influencers or the famous people get all of the attention and that, uh, you know, you as a human being in previous times were allotted a certain amount of attention because you belonged to a tribe or a community or a family. 
Now with broken families, you don't have that. So you're looking for the validation that you think you deserve and it needs to be exponential and you need to get a billion likes in order for it to even feel significant. And your creative expression is now indulged even when you have low resolution expression because you're using the ready-made tools that these social media apps give you so that you can be creative at a high level, but you're not really tapping into a discipline or you know your true creative potential. You're just basically a button pusher to all of these different apps and tools that make it that do it for you so that you can create a piece of content, but you're not actually gaining skills or, or getting better or becoming more creative. You're just basically a, yeah, you're like a secretary for your own content on some level. <laughs> and so these That's creative, funny. these people are getting all this attention for doing very low resolution creative tasks and they feel empty because the validation isn't genuine, isn't true, isn't connected to anything tangible. And then they're not even gaining any creative skills. So I would say, be wary, be leery of the social media industrial complex <laughs> and find the things that are, that are uncomfortable and subtle and interpersonal and the things that make you feel something in, in the body. Amen, brother. Who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work? Hmm. Give a shout out to Jamie Wheel. He's a friend and a mentor. I'm going to give a shout out to my farm mentor, Mike Tynert. He's a multi-generational homesteader farmer and he, he's taken me under his wing and I just feel so grateful to, to know someone who's so in the lifestyle and has, has taken an interest in teaching me. And then finally, my wife. She is such a gift. She was the first person that demanded more of me. She wanted more from me and required that I level up in order to be lucky enough to spend <laughs> my life with her. And she really saved my life. Beautiful. I relate. She's a good lady. You got a good one. We're two lucky dudes. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do my best to never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Thanks for uh, making time to come by today. Great to hang out with you. When we've been together in the past, there's always other people. It's the first time we've ever gotten to just dial in one-on-one, -on -one, which has been really fun. Thanks, brother. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for dropping in today with me and Adrian, y'all. Although we got to know some of Adrian's wisdom and experience, we didn't have much time to touch on some of the other great work he's up to in the world. And I wanted to share that with you. So here are a few other tidbits on his various projects. As an investor, he's backed companies and entrepreneurs that he believes can change the world for the better through his impact fund, Ducontra Ventures. And as an activist, Adrian founded the Lonely Whale Foundation, dedicated to bringing people closer to the world's oceans through education and awareness, inspiring empathy and action for ocean health and the well-being of marine wildlife. He's also a UN ambassador where he helped the UN Environment Program launch Clean Seas, a campaign to end marine plastic pollution. And uh, that's something, my friends, I can really get behind. To learn more about all these projects and more, visit lukestory.com slash Adrian for the complete show note resources and links. And here's what's up next on The Lifestylist. We've got number 468, and this one is bananas. It's called Mana from Heaven, Cracking Alchemical Codes of the Earth's Most Potent Substances with David Reed from Mana. Now, just when I thought I had discovered pretty much everything that could possibly be good for you out there in the world, I was recently introduced to Mana and its creator, David Reed, our guest on next week's show. This guy has spent years traveling all over the planet looking for the best shilajit, ormus, and sea minerals. And he does a great job of explaining the alchemy of these nutrients and the relevance of sacred geometry and the Earth's many energy centers. This was a mind-blowing conversation and one about which I am so excited to share with you. To get next week's episode dropped into your inbox on Tuesday morning, Here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com slash newsletter and I'll do the rest. Bless your life and I'll see you next week.